Good afternoon, it's uh, Dr. Andy Matheson and I'm here with the fourth episode of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. So last week we'd covered a, a few different topics and just uh, just wanted to add on to the first one of those before we, we get started this week. And that was, uh, we'd been talking about natural ways of boosting testosterone and how that might be appropriate in women that felt they didn't want to go for testosterone gel. However, they were menopausal and when they'd had their hormone profiles done, it showed low testosterone. And it was very reasonable for them to feel that as long as um, that had been recognised by a doctor and they had a prescription for testosterone, um, they may end up uh, got the uh, appropriate TUE if they were an elite competitor, uh, would there be any herbal options for getting stuff? And, uh, and I said I couldn't find much, and there was a bit on morale root and some other stuff. Um, interestingly enough, I was talking to someone who does a lot of natural foraging, uh, and they came up with uh, some other options, some, some more UK-based options that they said are quite popular at the moment. Um, one of them was pine... Um, pine tree and whether or not it's the it's the pollen or the needles there's a, lots of stuff online about different ways you can get hold of it um, the forest uh, the foraging uh, experts said they um, they tend to bring it up because a lot of people go for sort of pine needle tea without realizing it might actually have a, a testosterone boosting effect um, so I went just to sort of check on what sort of levels might be in there and the I found a, a nice little summary in um, Molecules published in 2019. Uh, the title of the article was Plants are Capable of Synthesizing Animal Steroid Hormones and just about, a bit about the fact that um, different plants can produce um, molecules that are chemically very similar to animal steroid hormones and have the same sort of effect. Uh, and yeah, on on there is is testosterone and the the amounts that you may be able to get from the uh, different species of pine tree. So interesting one for again for people who are wanting to to avoid gels or find more natural approaches or um, uh, feel that low testosterone might be a, an issue for them. Obviously, the downside with that approach, as with lots of herbal approaches, is how can you be sure what levels of testosterone are in there, especially if you're foraging and collecting yourself, um, and all these things will have will have side effects, which uh, we touched on a little bit last time in some of the, um, and we'll probably touch upon again when we start to talk about testosterone in men and, and when when it might be appropriate to uh, supplement that. The plan this week is going to be running through uh, a few different articles rather than uh, focusing on one particular topic. So the first one, and um, one which uh, for me really sort of summarised how, how tricky things can be and even um, simple things always end up a bit more complicated than, than you want, was uh, an article in the journal um, International Society of Sports Nutrition, JISSN. And it's about omega-3 fatty acids and how they might impact um, head trauma in uh, NCAA, sort of American football athletes. And um, it's called The Effect of Omega-3 Fatty Acids on a Biomarker of Head Trauma in NCAA Football Athletes, a Multisite Non-Randomized Study. 
Now, th there's lots of really good things about this. Firstly, any anything focusing on head trauma or mild traumatic brain injury or concussion is is got to be a step in the right direction. And and rather than focusing on preventing it happening, some some studies are saying, well, you won't stop people doing what they do. Um, and in addition, let's try and find see if we can find things that might provide. Uh, a protective uh, effect uh, and certainly in the diet. So very reasonable study but um, Tay tries to sort of oversimplify a very complex um, subject. Now the first thing that makes it tricky and, and you'll have sort of figured out just from that title is that they're looking at a biomarker rather than looking at the head trauma directly or long-term effects or um, sort of concussion style syndromes or MTVI syndromes. So it's it's a, not, not a great endpoint. Now the downside of, of choosing a, a biomarker or something it can be measured rather than a clinical syndrome as an endpoint is you're never quite sure what you're measuring. Now they've chosen um, something called NFL, uh, neurofilament light. Um, and this comes under the kind of uh, group of uh, chemicals called extracellular vesicles, which are a sort of novel uh, blood biomarker for traumatic brain injury. And there's been lots of research and interest in them. And in fact, uh, let's just double make sure I've got that right. I think the FDA has approved tests, uh, the GFAP and the UA UCH-L1 uh, extra extracellular vesicles vesicle blood tests for uh, traumatic brain injury. If people want nice summaries on, on this sort of thing, I'd say a really nice podcast I heard was on the BJSM talking about it. It, it actually was talking about the kind of the next um, uh, next sort of group of tests that are coming along and that are probably the next level, which were the sort of micro RNA tests um, and this what's called the scrum study that's being done um, in the UK. And it's a saliva test uh, looking at RNA patterns using these omic methods, um, which uh, have allowed them to identify almost like a fingerprint in, in RNA, micro RNA in the saliva uh, to show signs of a, sort of a head injury, um, which would obviously be, be far better than the current method, which is kind of questionnaires and which players and uh, coaches um, who are very driven to get back on the pitch might, uh, might unintentionally um, or intentionally uh, sort of cheat for want of a better word. So um, there's these extra ves extracellular vesicle biomarkers that um, we, we know rise in uh, traumatic brain injury and especially moderate, moderate to severe brain injury. Uh, and the idea of this study was what happens if we give people uh, a mixture of omega-3 fatty acids. Now, um, the, the brief summary was that um, it seemed to reduce the, uh, the it, it attenuated the rise in NFL, which they understandably um, summarise as a good thing. Uh, and this is probably the point where biomarkers like this we don't understand as well as we would like and, and you can't really make conclusions like that because yes it's it's great that they uh, are measuring it 
But unfortunately, in this study, they haven't measured any of the head injuries or given any data for that or the recovery there from the head injuries or the treatment that might have been for the head injuries. And one of the problems that we've they've found in a few studies on these um, on NFL and other uh, sort of EV biomarkers is that actually it, there might be an element that um, higher initial rises when they do the longer term studies might be associated with an improved outcome down the line. Now, all the studies that have shown that have come out saying, look, there are a lot of confounding factors here. We can't be sure. It may be that it drives um, clearance of, uh, of sort of the, the protein, um, proteins that may be causing damage. And actually, it's good to have a higher initial rise. Or it may be that it's just a sign that people with a worse initial injury are more likely to go get help and then do better. Um, so at the moment... You can't say because that biomarker hasn't risen as much when you've measured it, that is prevented traumatic brain injury or being neuroprotective. In fact, if you were playing devil's advocate, you could almost argue the other way around, that supplementing with omega-3 has reduced the rise in NFL and there's potential for that to be linked with a worse long-term outcome. So... Um, Always nice to see um, sort of TBI and concussion studies in there. Um, just a, just uh, unfortunately, people trying to leap to conclusions which we can't make uh, based on the biomarkers that they've chosen. The next article was another one from the journal of the um, the JISSN, um, and this one was looking at uh, the effect of ketogenic diet on body composition in some semi-professional soccer players. So always a sort of popular thing, and it's always quite hard to find studies that have uh, got high enough numbers in them or gone on long enough uh, to really kind of change how we might think. And, and unfortunately, this probably falls into another one that, that doesn't quite manage it. But it is interesting. So the, the title's Effects of 30 Days of Ketogenic Diet on Body Composition, Muscle Strength, Muscle Area, Metabolism and Performance in Semi-Professional Soccer Players. And it's an Italian study. And they observed these sort of semi-professional soccer players um, and put them through a 30-day uh, either ketogenic or what they call Western diet, which is essentially a sort of higher carbohydrate diet. Uh, now, only 16 people involved in it, um, but what I really liked about this study was that th they did the ketogenic diet well, and, and they, they all did urine checks, and, um, uh, and it seemed a very it seemed a very honest approach to putting people on the ketogenic diet. Um, and, and what they found was that actually for their semi-professional soccer players, they managed to lose fat mass on the ketogenic diet, but didn't drop any of their strength, power or, or muscle mass. Now, um, this probably isn't going to change anything that we do, because actually their, their semi-professional soccer players were, were pretty... Um, certainly we wouldn't call sort of elite players and they fell in a, a quite a particular band um, they were all kind of mid to late 20s they all had quite high body fats um, for, for certainly for soccer players um, the training volume it doesn't really go into any details on what training they were doing it just says about eight hours a week which again um, is, is lots of 
unknowns on there is that including uh match time um no monitoring of the of the kind of how far they're actually running how far they're going what intensities they're working at what previous uh, dietary patterns they've used are they um are they kind of fat adapted have they have they all got backgrounds in kind of cycling and in doing lots of long work and all that kind of stuff so um and, and the tests that they do to see whether or not their um their kind of uh performance has improved or not are just pure strength or what I'd call more aerobic ones and uh, arguably that's not the most suitable for a sport like football which um, depending on the position you're playing an explosive burst might be might be more useful to know. So um, for people that are looking so if you have a semi-professional footballer that's a bit overweight and is looking to lose weight but not impact his um, power or his aerobic ability and manage to keep up with a fairly gentle training regime from the sounds of it, actually this shows that ketogenic diet done well is absolutely fine over this this short period um, in this age group. But otherwise, um, so it might give you a bit more confidence to do that, but to be honest, if you're um, if you're thinking of doing it anyway, and the, the athlete's got by, and you, the athlete's bought in um, and wants to give it a go, uh, you're, you're, this isn't going to have stopped you and isn't going to get you starting to do it. So the next study is also in the JISSN, um, and this came out in in August, so a few months old now, but caught my eye at the time. Um, doesn't add a huge amount to what we already know, but just. Um, Ask, ask some questions, I suppose, of us as, as performance nutrition, nutritionalists. And uh, it's, it's, based, it's a US military dietary supplement study. Um, and it's called Prevalence Factors Associated with Use and Adverse Effects of Sports-Related Nutritional Supplements, brackets, sport drinks, sports bars, sports gels, close brackets, the US military dietary supplement use study. Um, and I mean, it's a it's a huge study, almost one hundred fifty thousand people in it. Uh, questionnaire study, but yeah, that's uh, that's always going to be be the case. Um, and just looking at what percentage of uh, people um, in the military and um, use supplements, and what tends to be linked with that, based on the other factors they have uh, have recorded from the questionnaire, um, and. The use isn't that different to what we'd, we've seen in other other similar groups. It's about forty five percent, and I think it said was highest in the um, uh, U.S. Marines and and the more um, uh, more, more infantry based uh, based units. Um, but the, the one which I think had been seen in past ones was that it, the supplement use is associated with smoking, and it's associated with with alcohol use. Uh, and again, that's um, it's one of these ones that just reminds you that the majority of supplement use isn't used by our elite athletes. Um, it's the sort of level below that. It's the recreational athletes or the military personnel that that their not their bodies aren't a temple. Um, and uh, I think when I was doing my um, diploma with the Institute of Performance Nutrition, there was always that kind of let's make sure we're always stepping back and thinking of the real world. And, and we can 
often overcomplicate a lot of what we do because you can think of all sorts of nutritional supplements that might be useful for people. But let's be honest, not having them going out, getting drunk quite as much, and maybe smoking a bit less are going to do far more than, than whatever you're going to come up with um, for, their, for their long-term health and probably for, for their performance and for their ability to work. But people smoke and drink for lots of reasons and uh, just performing better in the gym uh, often isn't going to be enough to override which other, which, whatever other reasons they have for, uh, for taking those things up. So, um, yeah, uh, useful study, not, not changing a huge amount, but just uh, for me that, that reminder that just to remember that uh, uh, our athletes are all human and will probably do very human things and don't get too focused on the dietary questionnaires and the discussion about diet to the detriment of what else is going on in their life who are they what are their hopes dreams and uh what's what's the tough thing that they're really dealing with in their life at the same time and next uh on to the final study and one that's got quite a little bit of um uh, media attention uh, and just and has been talked about uh, a fair bit already but so just just wanted to throw my uh, throw my little bit in wasn't going to talk about it too much uh, and this was the article by um, uh, sort, of a, sort of a wide um, group sort of international group uh, looking at uh, this uh, is it sort of 30 40 year 40 year database on sort of energy expenditure um, and they sort of they published uh, some findings on it. Um, and it was published in Current Biology in August, and it's called Energy Compensation and Adiposity in Humans. And it just it's just a um, a review of the data and uh, analysis, just to again push forward and give us a bit more uh, confidence in what we already know, which is that something called energy compensation occurs. So when I have someone come in who wants to lose weight uh, and they go two different ways about it, they might go about it by trying to reduce their calorie intake, I know that that's not going to result directly in them losing weight. Um, it will help, but a process is going to happen where their body realizes there's been a drop-off in the calories coming in and almost in my head I like to think it was like turns like a bear in winter in hibernation turns down the volume on some of the processes going in the body. Now what we don't know with energy compensation is what processes is it that it turns down in people with sort of relatively energy deficiency we start to get this idea that well maybe it's it's some parts of their bone strength or hormonal cycles, maybe their, their immunity, maybe their ability to recover from training. The, the volume all gets turned down or the processes all get sort of slightly put, put to bed and, and put running on low, um, which means that, yes, they might start to lose a little bit of weight, but not as much as they think for the amount that they've dropped because actually the body's just reduced these other body processes and the energy they require um, rather than, than lose weight. And it, it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary point of view. 
Now, this article was looking at this idea that actually that also occurs with, with exercise. What happens if we make a long-term increase in the activity that we do? Um, it doesn't, again, directly translate into um, reduced weight loss because our total energy expenditure, the total amount of work we're doing dropping, drops down because the body starts to turn down the sort of switches on these other areas within the body, whether or not they're the um, immune system or um, other things that are going going on. So um, useful and interesting from that point of view, doesn't add anything that we don't know, but just uses a, a sort of large and, and long-term uh, sort of data set to confirm what what we know, which is always always nice to have. Um, so further proof that actually um, this idea that all you need to do to lose weight is increase your activity or drop your calories down uh, is so sort of oversimplified. It actually is quite damaging in a way um, because there's energy compensation that goes on. The genetics of everyone is very different. The eating patterns of everyone, the microbiome, all of these things will mean that the body won't just respond the way it would do if we all just existed on a little simple calculation on a sheet. Uh, and and the, the damaging thing that I see again and again in patients with this is if we tell them this is all you have to do and we make it seem very simple, when it doesn't work or when they just start to feel pretty rubbish all the time or get ill all the time, especially in athletes, unable to perform, they start to question what they're doing and, and, and decide that actually maybe maybe this isn't worth it um, and lose a bit of hope and... and then it's much harder to get them to re-engage with, with methods um, of losing weight or improving their health that, that will work. I'll get the uh, details for all those studies onto the Facebook site. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, appreciate uh, any, any sort of posts through to the Facebook page and any thoughts um, or anything you, you disagree with. That would be, uh, be super. And I uh, hope you have a great day and manage to get lots of lots of exercise. And I'll chat to you soon.